Thank you. Do you ever get tired of hearing those beautiful songs with those sweet melodies and the even better words? It's just a beautiful thing. And I want to encourage you. There's nothing like the love of Jesus, which is why we're here today. And that love is stronger than our mistakes. It's stronger than our, our problems. And it's so much bigger than what you were born with or what you've reinforced in bad habits or choices. And it's the power that actually gives you the freedom to experience repentance and be sorry. But if you don't know how much he loves you, your starting point is going to be more about fixing problems than it is about becoming like him. Jesus loves us. And oh, how he loves you and me. Let's pray. Lord, we're here in your house. We're looking for the blessings only you can bring. And we're praying, Lord, that you would indeed bless us, that we would worship you by giving our lives to you, that we would love you with all our heart. So forgive us when other things have gotten in the way, but we're here now, Lord. We've, we've sung, we've given, we've sought you in prayer. And now, Lord, we're opening the word so the Spirit can impress our hearts. May we be honest people, humble people, kind and sweet people, all attributes of who you are. So send your spirit now to teach and to touch, to transform, to convict, to comfort. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to tell you right from the beginning what the premise of this message is, so it's not going to be an inductive study, at least in some respects. I'm going to tell you that uh, God's church is quite a resilient group of people. And the church is far more capable of handling situations than some may think. As a matter of fact, uh, there have been times when I've stood in a pulpit, be it this one or another, and I have a difficult sermon to preach. And the subject matter is going to be very delicate. But God's word is quite direct, kind but direct. And in walks somebody that doesn't ever come to church, and I say to myself, Lord, why did you send that person today? And then all of a sudden, standing behind the pulpit, my, my mind is working and, and seeking to link with heaven rapidly, saying it's like, do I keep going or do I deviate? I want to assure you, that the church will exist until Jesus comes, even though it looks like it's going to fall, not because of the church members or the leadership, but because of Jesus Christ, the head of the body. And it's going to be okay. And I'm going to show you in the sermon today some challenging chapters for God's people from the beginning of the experience of Israel up to our very present time. And I'm going to show you the real problem with the church, the real problem with the church. So let's start with the real, real problem with the church. Could we do that? It goes back to the year 1991. And you think maybe the real problem with the church goes farther back than that. But the real problem with the church was 1991 when a young pastor was assigned three little churches in north central Indiana. One was called Rochester. It had four people attending. One was called Monticello. It had 25 attending. And one was called Logansport. They had about 35 attending. And the real problem with the church was that there was a, a young man who had been giving these assignments. He had been trained and, and was a Christian. By God's grace, is a Christian. 
and looked at the places and thought, boy, we've got problems here, you know, because the Seventh-day Adventist Church has been around long enough that it's in the stage, stages of plateau and decline and death. That's just the facts. That's why we close more schools than we open, and that's why we have lots of churches living on the bubble of their very existence. And the real problem with the church is that our humanity gets in the way of so many things, and this young pastor was not exempt from that experience. And Finally, it's like it's time for us to move and make a decision, so we're going to have a business meeting. The first probably business meeting this pastor had ever led, and in the midst of that business meeting, there was just, there was one person who kept making comments that were just irritating. And, you know, God wants us to be as much out of the way as we can be so he could actually do something. But life's learning about that. And in the midst of this business meeting, the, so, the social awareness factor of this person dropped low enough to where the self-control of the pastor got high enough to where it breached good decision-making and he said something he shouldn't have said in front of the whole business meeting. The problem was that the pastor had a sensitive enough conscience with the real walk with God to where it started bothering him. The meeting ended, everybody went home, and when the pastor got home, business meetings are kind of stressful anyway because you don't have to clear any hurdle with a nominating committee or anything else. You don't even have to come to church. You just have to have your names on the books and you can show up and you can say all kinds of ridiculous things and make all kinds of accusations and it's it's like, it's like if, if, if I were to make an, an, an analogy of what a business meeting is, it's like a bull riding rodeo where the pastor is waiting to see which Brahma bull he's going to ride. And everybody's waiting to see how long he can stay on it before he gets thrown off. All right? And, you know, those rodeos have clowns who sometimes recognize what's going on to try to save the pastor after he gets thrown off the bull. And uh, they look benign, but their job is important, though dangerous. And uh, if you're a real Christian, you haven't deadened the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. He, he gets to be God still. And I want to tell you, I couldn't shake it. The real problem and the Adventist church, well, yeah, let's keep going. I couldn't shake it. Yeah, Ron, you didn't speak properly to that lady. By the way, that lady, I've been her pastor two different times because, and she's still very much alive, and she may know if she's watching this sermon who I'm talking about. And finally, after days and days, I surrendered to the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit that said, Ron Kelly, you owe that lady an apology. Okay, how do you do that? Well, private sins should be discussed privately. And public sins, wouldn't you know it, Steps to Christ says, need to be confessed how? Publicly. Like, okay, I did it publicly. I'm going to get to make it right publicly. Now, not everybody was at the business meeting. And this 20-some-year-old pastor is thinking to himself, you know, uh, I, I'm going to do what's right. It's not exciting, but she deserves it, and I want to be a good, loving pastor. 
So I took the roster of the people that were there and I wrote a letter in which I made it very clear I had mistreated this person and I sent it to every person that went to the meeting. And for every parent that's listening to me and every pastor and every administrator, I want you to know something. If you're operating in circles of religious credibility, your credibility is never higher than when you say, I'm sorry. Because then all of those people watching you as you've been entrusted with the stewardship of leadership are in a position to say, the pastor is a real Christian. The trust of the pastor goes up. The respect for the action is not going up, but the respect for the action of apologizing goes up. And I, I want everyone to know something. You never apologize to make peace. That's called appeasement. It's not real sorrow for sin, and it's not an accepted apology in the eyes of most people or God. But the real problem with the church is all the people. And let's start with the pastors. And then let's go on to the elders and the deacons and the deaconesses and everybody else too, if we could. Because the real problem with the church on earth as it's combined with the church in heaven is that our humanity often gets in the way and God has made provision to reconnect and reposition and reunite. But sometimes our pride remains an obstacle. Now, I'm quite convinced that the worldwide church can survive because Jesus is the one at the helm. Have you ever seen that picture where he's standing there and the wind is blowing? There's a lady hanging on his arm and a husband standing here with his hand on his shoulder and Jesus is at the tiller. He's at the helm. And they're looking out across the deck, which you can't see, but the wind is blowing their hair and the, the boat's got a little bit of a tilt. I love that picture. <laughs> Jesus, Savior, pilot me over life's tempestuous seas. He's the captain of our salvation. He's the head of the church, and he's well capable of handling our humanity. And today, I just want to give a shout-out to all those little churches who train all of us pastors who come out of the seminary thinking we know so much and have so much yet to learn. And for those three little churches, I want to say thank you. You know, Robert Fulgham wrote a book once called Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And most of everything I needed to know about pastoring uh, was, was learned pastoring. And simple things guided me, like the golden rule. It wasn't too hard to figure out. I want to tell you today, God's church has had problems for 6,000 years. And it has ridden the waves. And sometimes the sea is calm and placid, and other times it is tempestuous and angry and surging. Somehow in the midst of our humanity, there is this super, this ascending presence of Christ that takes us above and beyond ourselves and actually grows us in the midst of it. Yes, our, our church has had and will have problems. The question is, do you love 
God's church. I'm asking you, do you love God's church? Do you love the people in the church? Because the church isn't the building. People meet underneath trees with light bulbs like the one there in uh, down near El Ego, Mexico, where we built them a church. We pulled up that Friday night. There's one indoor cord sneaking up through the tree and one bare light bulb, and they're having church. The church is the people. And, you know, the people include the leaders. And if there's one thing you need to know is that the Bible says that a leader, an elder who leads well, is worthy of double honor. But the other thing you need to remember is the vast history of all the leaders that reminds us that they're just people too. And their feet are feet of clay. And that's a little hard to do because all of us are looking for someone to look up to and all of us want somebody's shadow to walk in and Jesus actually is kind and he gives us parents and teachers and preachers and, and other men and women of more experience and more preparation and we follow behind them knowing at some point in time they're going to take off their mantle, put it on us and it'll be our turn. But if there's one thing I'd like to get across today, yea, too, it's this. As it is God's people are marked by a divine honesty and a divine compassion that makes them the best people in the world to deal with. Because they all know that they have problems themselves and the graciousness of God not only allows them, but it moves and motivates and mandates that they show that graciousness to others. But in the midst of a healthy family system, God also expects law and justice with that merciful, humble spirit to keep us on a good track. There's nothing worse than a home or a school or a culture where false love is in the ascendancy and everybody feels good about themselves while they're destroying themselves with dysfunction. And there's not anything that's Equally less worse about a home where there's rigid justice and no love, no humility, no kindness, no compassion. Both of these polarities are terrible to live under. One shows its painful lack of fruitfulness in the now, the raw justice side. And the other doesn't show its painful injustice till later when dysfunction has fettered the person and they can't make it to freedom because they're bound by their own desires unchecked, unruled, lack of self-control. Our society at this moment in time does not want to deal with issues of morality and justice unless they fit the trajectory of their own version of morality and justice. But the old school morality that built homes and nations, especially this one, cannot be run over without reaping what we sow. And so this morning, I want you to understand something. The problem with the church is not a person in a position. It's not even a policy. It's all of us who bring our humanity to bear on each other and sometimes don't bring the divinity of the forgiveness and the love of Christ that's been offered to us to each other. It doesn't deny right and wrong. It just remembers that Human beings are fragile folks, and they need to be touched with love as often as possible. Take your Bibles and turn over to Matthew chapter 18. I want to illustrate this with two things that Jesus said. 
Matthew chapter 18, and most of you probably won't be remembering that two very significant dynamics of proper relating to each other are aligned. I mean, like right next to each other. Matthew chapter 18. Now, sometimes we'll quote the idea of how to hold people accountable, and we quote from Matthew chapter 18. The problem is it's very difficult to live out Matthew chapter 18, beginning with verse 15, because you've got to guard your heart from not disliking somebody. You've got to be a real Christian to follow Matthew 18, or else it's too painful to go talk to somebody that you're so angry with you could just spit nails. And yet, without prayer, we don't love each other very well, and it makes it hard to follow this. If your brother sins, verse 15, go and show him his fall in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Cellular problem solving is the biblical mandate. Verse 16, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. It's very interesting to me that the Bible has any interest in fact. I mean, not that the Bible has it, but that it's reminding us. In other words, the truth does matter. For as much as we're trying to protect the brother or the sister's dignity by doing this in private, the truth still does matter. And there are many today who would like to suggest that method matters more than truth. Well, they both matter. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Well, that kind of love is not easy to live. And nobody really wants to deny a human being that basic level of fellowship that, that human beings crave, community and belonging. But if a man or a woman is so proud and so recalcitrant that they won't listen to a, a, a growing cacophony, a, a growing echoing accountability, a chorus of accountability, then at some level, they're left to face their wrong deeds and their dysfunction until life has taught them. You know, the boy in the pig pen, uh, Spirit of Prophecy writes that when his misery conquered his pride, he was ready to learn something. And his dad wasn't the problem, his dad was the solution. Now, it's not really my subject matter this morning, those verses, so let's go to the next ones. But I need you to see that they're not incongruent with each other. These verses are all talking about how to have proper, healthy relationships in the church. Chapter 18, verse 21, then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jeff puffing out just a little bit with a great practical and experiential and theological answer. And Jesus said to him, you're a little bit short. I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. So 490 is our number. The exact number of years in Daniel chapter nine that God puts his people on probation before the cross and the stoning of Stephen. Interesting. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him, but since he didn't have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and his children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and he prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. The only problem with the narrative is that it's an absolute uttermost impossibility. The debt he owed was beyond multiple lifetimes of paying back. 
He's you. He's me. In other words, the only merit we have is the merit of the one who loves us. And he is willing to pay the unpayable price. And he is a merciful, compassionate God. So the Lord felt compassion. And he released him. And he forgave him the debt. But there is a problem, folks. The problem is, is that somehow the man who was forgiven didn't understand. His experience had not stretched his heart to the place where he understood his humanity and the amazing grace of his benefactor. And he goes out. I don't know if he still thinks he's got to repay the debt or if he's just so small of a person that he doesn't want to live without the benefits of being employed by that wonderful Lord. And he wants a little money. That slave went out, verse 28, and he found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him, and he began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe me. So his fellow slave fell to the ground, and he began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me, and I will repay you. hundred denarii. But he was unwilling. And he went and he threw him in a prison until he should pay back what was owed. So his fellow slaves saw what had happened, and they were deeply grieved, and they went and reported it to the Lord, their Lord, all that had happened. And then summoning him, the Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord was moved with anger against him over the tor and handed him over to the torturers till he should repay all that was owed him. And verse 35 is the difficult verse. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brothers from your heart. And probably from your heart is the hardest part to keep. But guarding your heart so that you have compassion for your fellow man whether or woman, whether it's a leader or a fellow church member or a spouse or a child or a parent, that's the hard part. And isn't it? It's kind of funny how people are. You know, in our unconverted state, we love dirty laundry. I mean, when I was a kid, there was a rock and roll song that talked about giving us dirty laundry. There is something about us to where we feel just a little better to see somebody else is a little worse or a lot worse. You see, the problem with the church isn't the church, it's just me and you. It's the church. And something happens inside of us at times when we forget how needy we are. Something happens inside us at times when we think we've got the one-up on morality with somebody and, and we've uncovered something that's not quite right. Now, I, I don't want to be misunderstood in one little iota. This church and this pastor and this congregation have their own problems. Doesn't mean they're the same as everybody else's doesn't mean we should focus on them. You don't change by looking at what's wrong. You change by looking to Jesus. But there is a contingency inside of Seventh-day Adventism that, that is prone to expect and maybe even look for problems wherever 
power has congregated around an individual or an institution. Now, I'm going to be the first person to tell you, I learned, I learned the hard way about dealing with the church before I ever worked for it. And at the risk of repeating the stories, which I will and have done and will do in the future so that nobody thinks I'm going senile, when I was 18 years old, I applied to work at summer camp. And that summer, my sister, who had worked there before and done a stellar job, wasn't hired. And I wrote a letter to the camp director expressing my dismay, and I must have touched a nerve because at a Pathfinder, he was the youth director and Pathfinder leader, at a Pathfinder investiture, he called me out onto the back stoop of the church school, and I want to tell you something, I got the message in no uncertain terms that uh, I didn't have a right to write a letter like that. You know, when you're 18 years old staring into the face of somebody who's middle-aged, works for the church, has a departmental position, that person went on to work for the highest levels, if you want to call it that, in our church. And you know, not too many years ago, I saw that person in Tennessee worshiping in the same church I was in. And I went over and visited with him. You know the truth of the matter? He probably forgot the encounter. When you're 18 and you think everybody that works for the church is like Moses, you don't forget so easy. But you know, God has a way of healing his people if his people recognize they themselves need healing. And there's a work for each of us to do to basically say, Lord, in the same way you've been merciful with me, make me merciful with the people around me. I've been cussed at. I've been mocked in board meetings. I've been derided in elders' meetings. This is all just in my local church. I've watched churches make bad decisions. I've tried to stop them at times. We had a church school sign made for the Kokomo Church. When I left, they said I forced them to do it. Well, I must have been quite a person if I could force a dozen people to spend $300. They were so worried about the money, they weren't going to pay the person who painted the sign. But I wasn't going to let God's good name be drugged through the mud because a group of people weren't going to have corporate integrity and they were going to stiff a sign painter for 300 and some dollars. So we paid for the church school sign in the district I went to and we brought it there and we used it for 10 years. How many times have I dealt with the perfidy of God's people? And how many times have they had to deal with my mistakes? God's people are going to be distinguished, not because they don't make mistakes, but because they are gracious and truthful. And it's not one without the other. Modern society would love the graciousness without the truthfulness, but God's people are gracious and truthful. They deal with difficult issues, but they deal with it in a way that shows the superiority of Jesus, the captain of their souls and this corporate church. Jesus and John the Baptist called the scribes and the Pharisees broods of vipers. 
at least three times between the two of them. Somehow, some very difficult decision-making took place. And it was conflict at a level you and I can't really appreciate. Take your Bible and turn over to the book of Revelation. To me, I'm just almost flabbergasted by this fact found in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21. It says in verse 10, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and the 12 gates at the 12 gates were angels. And everything's perfect up until this point in time. But then you come to this phrase, and it says, and names were written on them. Well, whose names? Well, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. What? You mean Reuben, who took Rachel's helpmeet, which was one of the concubines slash wives of his dad and slept with her? Do you mean either of those boys, Simeon and Levi, who lied to all those Shechemites and said, you can be with us if you'll be circumcised. And on the third day when they were in the pain of circumcision, they went through and they slew everybody? You mean the liar murderers? And what about Judah, through whom the divine line, the lineage of Christ comes? Uh, He was with all the other ten when Joseph was sold, or nine, and he went back and participated in the same flat-out lie that a wild beast had devoured the elder boy of his favorite wife. And not long after, you find Judah sleeping with his daughter-in-law unbeknownst. I mean, the lineage, the moral history of these men is rather tainted, to say the least, the dysfunction of a doting, favoritistic father. I mean... When you start to look at what God can do, you say to yourself, in spite of Moses striking the Egyptian and the rock the second time, in spite of David committing murder and adultery, in spite of Elijah running away in the midst of the Reformation, in spite of Paul's countrymen, converted Christians upon whom the Holy Spirit had fallen, saying, take this Nazarite vow, in spite of the fact they almost took his life, and robbed the church of a pillar. In spite of all this, God's not ashamed to call us his brethren, and his power is so complete that he can transform the most dysfunctional into the divine image of his son and put their names on the gates. He can take his church through. The question is, will we have the attitude and spirit of Christ on the journey and actually make it to the end? That's the question. Now, nobody gets a free pass. Nobody. If you're the pastor of the Logansport Church and you blow it, there's a divine Savior that says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Though he falls, he won't be utterly cast down, for he upholds him with his hand. So get up, Ron. Make a heartfelt apology. So whether you're the parent 
or whether you're the pastor or whether you're the president of the highest organization inside the circles of the church or wherever you are on the spectrum, nobody gets a pass. This is an Elijah message church that believes the law is the mirror and that law doesn't bend. That mirror doesn't disfigure. It just shows. But nobody should get to go through life without the prayerful support of the brothers and sisters who are admonished in the writings of Paul to restore one another. Is our ministry able to put our arms around both things? Yes, mistakes were made. I have a book on my Kindle account. Mistakes were made. That's the name of the book. The question is, will we as God's people reflect his image in processing our problems? If the answer is yes, we show the world something they don't even know how to get to. But if we put their hand in the hand of Jesus, they can have the communion we have. We hold each other up in prayer and we hold each other accountable. And anything less than that's not a healthy family. And the tendency to decry method over message, feeling and affection over truth, is superbly problematic. So what happens when as a body we're not really connected to Christ and connected to each other? We just get pimples all over ourselves. Don't you hate it? Teenage kid, not sure who you are. And why is that pimple growing right there on the end of my nose? The more you mess with it, the worse it gets. I know some of you had perfectly complected faces. I'm sorry you can't identify with me. <laughs> we have to love Jesus, love each other, and love the truth. Nothing else is going to work. But you know what? With Jesus in the vessel, you can smile at the storm. Now, I have things here in my hands I'm not going to take the time to go over. I'm just going to tell you, we've made a few mistakes as a denomination through the years. Back in the 70s, we hired a woman named Mary Kay. She worked as assistant book editor at Pacific Press. She didn't make as much as the men made. The church at that time had a head of household policy. She wasn't the head of her household, so she made about 40% less than the guy in the cubicle over. Well, her husband lost his job, and she said, well, go back to school. That made her the head of household. But the church had never recognized a woman head of household in that role, and after months and months, they wouldn't budge. It ended up in a lawsuit. Unfortunately, we were breaking federal law, and it had to be fixed through some very painful dynamics. In the 1980s, there was a doctor in California by the name of Davenport. He came up with this fabulous investing scheme. Unfortunately, he convinced not only his friends, but some of the leaders of the church to invest money that was held in trust by the church. It all imploded, leaving the church losing $21 million. I have an article right here quoting Elder Neil Wilson, who it appears dealt with this very judiciously and properly. You think leaders don't ever make mistakes? Oh, they make them. It's just hard being a leader. So if you don't love and pray for and support, 
you end up with difficult moments. But even if you do love and support and pray for you, you still end up with some difficult moments. Listen. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And remember this. The elder who serves well is worthy of double honor. The elder who doesn't serve well might have to make a few apologies too. That doesn't mean they don't typically serve well. But please do everybody in your circle of influence a favor. Fill your heart up with love. Accept the wonderful forgiveness Jesus has offered you and give it away freely to other people. Because if you don't forgive people from your heart, touched by the love, the heart of God, then there's no place for you in the communion because you're dishonest and you can't acknowledge your great need and your own mistakes. I have good hopes. I could write a book about mistakes that have either been made that have affected me or that I've made. It's not a book that should be published. <laughs> it's a book that should remind me that I need to give to others what I want them to give to me. I don't want anybody to act like they're, that, that they can never come and talk to me. If you feel like you need to come and talk to me, please come. I'll listen to you respectfully. I may not agree with everything you say, and I may have to change my mind later, and I may never change my mind. I respect people who love me enough to follow Matthew 18. Both parts of Matthew 18, kind forgiveness and honest dialogue. They come together. The church is going to make it. Everybody's quite capable of handling some of the difficult chapters. We've been in one. Be nice if we could get out of it. But the simple principles of right and wrong will still have to guide. The mirror shows the truth. Not what we want to see sometimes. So I'm asking you today to show the nobility of person that Jesus showed who could address the Pharisees sometimes painfully, powerfully, pointedly. But it wasn't because he was mad at them. And he could deliver a woman caught in the midst of adultery at the tip of the spear of their venom. He could have turned around and said to him, you blazing hypocrites. You set this all up. You're a pervert. You're a thief. You're an extortioner. Instead, he wrote in the sand. There's all different kinds of ways that things have to be done. There's Matthew, the latter chapters of Matthew, where there's woes on the scribes and the Pharisees. But folks, let's show the world that we're a mature group. We deal kindly, honestly, and humbly with each other. And we trust the Lord to work it out. This is my hope and my prayer. This is a time of prayer. May God help us all to be the people he's called us to be. Not dysfunctional in either way. Kind and true. Do justly, Micah wrote. Love mercy and walk humbly.
Amen.